I'll do my best to get through this. We've got a lot of scripture to take a look at, and I won't necessarily make you go to every single reference, but uh, got some good stuff. The study of salvation. What is salvation? Well, you know, I think everybody in here could probably give a pretty good definition, but salvation is God's work in bringing people from a position or state of condemnation to justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. God's bringing us from a state of condemnation, an enemy, an object of wrath, to justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we're going to come back to those ideas in the second half of our time together this morning, those ideas of sanctification, justification, and glorification. But more simply, salvation is God's provision for man's sinful state. That's it. God's provision for man's sinful state. God does not cause us to sin. Um, He doesn't relish in the fact that we sin. He's saddened and he's burdened by our sin. But he has made a provision whereby he rescues us from the consequences of our sin. And so salvation is God's provision to deal with our, our fallen, corrupted state. Michael and I had a discussion this week. And I think oftentimes in, in the church we feel like salvation began, or God's plan for salvation began in Genesis 3.15. But the reality is it probably began before the foundations of the earth. God's sovereignty was aware that Adam and Eve and you and me would choose to be our own gods and reject him. And so in God's sovereignty, he made provision before the foundations of the earth to deal with our fallen state. We had some window guys at our house. We, we are having the windows replaced, and all of our windows are custom, and they're custom making these things. And there's a section of Clarastory transom windows that we were working on. I was up there on the roof with these guys on Monday, and we were putting in some, some pieces, and, and uh, I said, well, now, when we come back, I want the flashing to kind of wrap up and come back behind this piece of wood. And they looked at me and said, well, that wood's not going to get wet. I looked back at them and I said, that wood is not supposed to get wet. But let's make provision now so that it doesn't. Let's guarantee now that it won't get wet. Let's put the flashing in such a way that we've made provision for it perpetually. And so I believe that's sort of what God has done on our behalf. In his sovereignty, he has made provision for our salvation to deal with our fallen compromised state of sin. And we might ask the question, why would God want to save us? Why, why would he want to do this? Now, I don't, I don't want to presume to know the mind of God, to possess the mind of God, and to, to know every last detail of what he was thinking. But the Bible gives us a little insight, and, and maybe there's three things that we can look at. Maybe there's three reasons we could consider that God might want to save us. The first is, that salvation becomes the greatest demonstration of God's love. Salvation becomes the greatest demonstration of God's love. You guys know John 3.16 said that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only son, right? Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He 
died for us. So love in contemporary culture is an emotion. You know, we always think about love and, and passion that we have for others. But love is really an action. It's really a verb. It requires a decision. It requires an action on behalf of a person to exhibit. And so God demonstrates his love through the cross. Remember what John said to his, or Jesus said to his disciples? He said, if you guys love one another, if you demonstrate the principles that I am espousing to you, if you follow my commands and love one another, people will what? They will know that you are my disciples. They will see through a practical demonstration of your behavior. You guys know that song? The adults know the song. They will know we are Christians by our love. A demonstration. And so God's love is revealed, I would say, at its most extreme by saving us on the cross. It doesn't get any more extreme than the cross, than sending your one and only begotten son to hang a gruesome sinner's death so that you might demonstrate the love you have for your creation. Second reason God might want to save us is that salvation becomes a display of God's grace. Salvation becomes a display of God's grace. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. It's my understanding that Michael spent some time in Ephesians 2 last week. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 says that, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So, Paul writes that first, God made us alive in Christ. Right? We were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive in Christ. And he says that he will raise us up and seat us in the heavenly places. And he has done this, Paul says, so that he may demonstrate his surpassing riches, grace, and kindness through the ages. That going on into eternity, when we are celebrating eternity with the risen Savior, the King of Kings, in heaven, we will be like trophies for God. That through the ages, we who have been redeemed and saved by the Lord will be an example of His grace and His kindness and surpassing riches. The third thing is that salvation restores us to the state that God originally intended and beyond. Salvation restores us to the state that God originally intended and beyond. You have heard this from the pulpit here in our congregation on numerous occasions. That God didn't just restore us to the state of the garden, but he has lavished upon us riches and grace and mercy that is even better than it was in the garden. We have the Holy Spirit who lives and resides in us now. We get to become partakers of the divine. That is so much greater than simply walking with God in the garden. What God has done is 
above and beyond the call of duty. He didn't just say, okay, I'm going to fix the situation and just put you back to what it was like in the garden. No. He's made us heirs of the kingdom for eternity. That's beautiful. Genesis 2.26, we studied this during our anthropology message. We have been made in the image and likeness of God. Angels aren't redeemed. Nature is not redeemed yet, but we are. One of the reasons is because we have been made in the image and the likeness of God. Ephesians 1.4 says that just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be blameless before him. So God's intent, God's purpose for humanity has always been that we should be blameless before him. And so he's restoring us to that state of being blameless before him. And he's gone above and beyond to lavish upon us. And we can celebrate that we're special in God's eyes. That's a great truth. That's a great principle. But at the same time, even in our celebration that we get redeemed and that we're special in God's eyes, we have to be careful about the credit that we want to take personally for that, don't we? It's all about the Lord. We cherish our salvation simply because he has made us privy and knowledgeable of the wretched state that we once were. Pam and I were discussing before service just this morning about how easy it is for us to look at others in the world who are unsaved and just despise them and view them with such disdain, lest we forget that that's who we used to be apart from Christ Jesus. It wasn't something that we did for ourselves where we somehow picked ourselves up from our bootstraps and cleaned up our act and came to Christ and said, you know, look how polished I am, Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. He sought us when we were behaving and acting just like the world that we can't stand now. So lest we celebrate our own efforts, let's remind ourselves that God has chosen us for salvation and he sought us out. Uh, Mirren's got her giraffe with her this morning. Well, two of them. That one that she's holding up there, that's, his name is Draffy. It's kind of like giraffe, but it's spelled D-R-A-F-F-Y. Draffy. And just a couple of nights ago, Miriam was headed to bed, and she couldn't find Draffy. And she looked all over the house. She searched top and bottom. Couldn't find him. And I think she made an attempt to go ahead and just go to bed. And then, ten minutes later, we see her come back up to the living room, still walking around, still searching, still looking for Draffy. It was unacceptable for her to go to bed knowing Draffy was lost. But let me tell you, he didn't know he was lost, but she did. And as far as she was concerned, he needed to be found. And she found him and went to bed. We didn't know that we were lost until God moved in our hearts to cause us to recognize our wretched, depraved, sinful state and our utter need for a savior and salvation. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Oops, I won't pass. Verse 30, a verse you guys all know very well. John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is 
finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now there's something beautiful that's somewhat hidden in this text. When Jesus is hanging on that cross, he's breathing his last breath, he's about to give up his spirit, and he says, it is finished. In the Greek, it's the perfect tense. And in the Greek, the use of the perfect tense is extremely rare. We don't see it very often. You've heard us talk about an aorist tense, which simply means an action that was completed in the past sometime without any real definitive timeline, just a completed action. You hear us talk about the present tense, which refers to an ongoing action. You know, oftentimes you see a present tense from the epistles when the writers are encouraging their audience, you know, continue behaving this way for the glory of God or stop behaving in this way. It is a present, ongoing action. But the perfect tense is rare. And the perfect tense implies an action or an event with a specific time stamp to it with results and effects that continue on into the future. Now think about that. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. When he says that, finished refers to everything that God has set in motion regarding salvation for sin. Everything that God had set in motion leading up to that moment on the cross, it has been completed at that moment. And, Finished means it's good going forward. The finished work of the cross results in salvation and its effects extend perpetually into the future for you and I. Everything in the world since the cross has been a result of salvation being made complete. Think about that. Everything that we experience today in the world is a function and a result of salvation having been made complete there on that cross when he gave up his Spirit and made atonement for mankind. Everything is moving towards his second coming, his return. How many of you are familiar with uh, what a Rube Goldberg machine is? So we watch Dude Perfect a lot, and they do those on occasion. And a Rube Goldberg machine is one of those contraptions and setups where you have some sort of a catalyst that begins, and of course, you know, it might be dominoes and a marble ramp and, and all kinds of other things. And then this, this illustration might be kind of crude, but I liken God's Old Testament preparation and provision and all of the foreshadowing, the sacrificial system, and everything that he was doing to prepare humanity for Jesus' work of the cross as sort of setting up this Rube Goldberg machine. Right? He's building the ramp, and maybe King David is the one who gets a little glimpse of that ramp. And, and he's... He's building these dominoes and setting them up. And maybe those are the prophets catching a glimpse of just a few dominoes here and there. And God is putting this whole thing together. And then at one particular moment in time, he says, now it's time. Now it's time. And he takes that marble and he drops that. Or he he touches that first domino. And everything is set into motion. At that moment... It is finished. All of the preparation, the stuff that he had done leading up to the cross is now happening. And it's all working towards the future when Jesus will come back. And so, I mentioned that we're going to kind of split our message in two halves. The first half this morning, you see from your outlines, salvation is God's finished work at the cross. 
Salvation is God's finished work at or of the cross. And we're looking to look at four particular dynamics or motifs that Jesus fulfilled there on the cross. The first is going to be that, and this is in no particular order, the first is that Jesus became a substitution for sinners. He became a substitution for sinners in the finished work of the cross. Substitution simply means that Christ died in our place. He is our substitute in death. Sometimes you'll hear people refer to vicarious atonement, that Jesus is our vicar. Uh, When I was single, I had a roommate named Ben, and we had uh, a married friend's, uh, Chad and Allison, and we would go over to Chad and Allison's house, and Allison would constantly fix Ben and I food. She would just load it up on the table right in front of us, sit down, she'd sit there and watch Ben and I eat. And we go, don't you want any? She goes, no, I just like living vicariously through you guys. I just love watching you guys eat. And we were like, okay, that's fine. If you just feel like you need to take care of us, you know, that, that works. I have friends now who you know, wonder why I am not as into sports um, personally participating. A lot of it's the kids. I love watching the kids play sports now. I don't have to anymore. I like to live vicariously through them and watch them do their activities. And so Jesus became the Lamb of God, our substitution, slain to satisfy the Old Testament law. Now, let's talk about the Old Testament law for a minute. We had examples where God prescribed burnt offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, a system that was designed to atone for man's sin, and ultimately it was designed to point to the work of the cross. Right? It was a foreshadow and a metaphor for who Jesus would ultimately come and satisfy. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. So all of those animal sacrifices that you have been offering for decades and centuries, I now become the final sacrifice. I become the sacrificial lamb for you. And so as you guys probably know, the process was that the priest or the person making the offering would place his hands on that animal and that was designed to be a metaphor for transferring the guilt and sin to that substitutionary sacrifice. Edersheim says that that process of laying hands on that substitution, that that sacrifice, that animal, it was generally understood to be done with one's full weight upon the substitute in as much as it was possible. In the New Testament, understanding of substitution is further reinforced as God indicates that Jesus died instead of us in our place. So imagine that. It was generally understood that that practice of offering salvation, those hands were placed and some weight was placed on there as a sign, as a visual of the transfer of my sin to that substitutionary animal. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He became our substitution. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. We would have been cursed. He became that curse for us. He became our substitute. You might remember from Easter, our Easter message was about the irony of the cross. John 11, we read that the leaders, the religious leaders, literally said, 
it would be better for one man to die than for the masses. It's better that one man gets sacrificed so that the masses don't get led astray and corrupt. Isn't that ironic? That Jesus became the substitution for the masses, but not in the way that they had intended. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The substitution is, we were sin, he was sinless, and God made him sin on our behalf so that we might get the righteousness of God. He was a substitute. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all, and he says, the just for the unjust. The just person died in the place of the unjust person. That's substitution. All right, the second role that Jesus occupied hanging on that cross and the finished work of the cross, he became a propitiation for God's wrath against sinners. Jesus became a propitiation for God's wrath against sinners. Propitiation simply means the turning away of wrath by an offering. The turning away of wrath by an offering. Now we see throughout the Old Testament God's utter hatred for sin. Now you might say, ooh, hatred. You're not supposed to say hate, right? Right, Miran? Ooh, hate's a bad word. Don't say hate. No, God hates sin. And I'm okay with saying that. He despises sin. He cannot be a part of sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. God is good and there is no sin in him. There are 20 or so different words that refer to wrath in the Old Testament as a result of sin and roughly 580 references. Something like 580 references to God's wrath as a result of sin. Um, Turn with me to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 Verses 15 to 17. You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it, in its castle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. And nothing from that which is under the ban shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase just as he has sworn to your fathers. Great example of his wrath, right? Turn to Jonah. I believe Dave, was Dave going to speak to us about Jonah next week, possibly? Yeah. Turn to Jonah, or I'll go ahead and read it if if you don't have a chance to get there. Jonah chapter 3, verse 7. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let men, man, beast, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. And if we jump down to verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God's wrath against the sin of Nineveh was turned away. 
God's wrath is recognized in the New Testament too. Um, John three thirty six. John three, verse thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Sin angers a righteous God, but Jesus became a propitiation for God's wrath, and he turned God's wrath away from you and I, away from believers. He has satisfied God who is offended by our sin, and God's anger has been turned. Third, third role Jesus operated in as he hung on that cross for us. Jesus became a redeemer for sinners. He became a redeemer for sinners. Now, redemption simply means freedom as a result of payment. Freedom as a result of payment. We have incurred a sin debt with our Creator. We cannot pay for our sin debt. We cannot buy back a previous state of being sinless. We, we cannot repay God for our transgressions against him. We can't say, Lord, uh, I know I lied yesterday. Um, how much is that lie worth? I'll make amends. I'll make it up to you. I'll, I'll pay you back whatever the price of that lie was. We can't do that. It's impossible. But there's a cost to it. And redemption is necessary. But we cannot do that for ourselves. Now, what's kind of interesting is that there are not many overt examples of redemption as a result of sin in the Old Testament. That might seem kind of strange to you for a second. There's not a lot of examples of redemption specifically as a result of the sin in the Old Testament. And Ryrie says this. He gives a reason for why this might be. He says, this is probably due in part to the emphasis that is placed on the sacrificial system because it was continually seen. So it didn't have to be said so frequently. In other words, when we talk about a price or redemption needing to be paid as a result of sin, we don't see a lot of overt examples in the Old Testament simply because there was a sacrificial system at play. God had instituted a system whereby atonement was made for sin that was seen regularly. You know, the priests were constantly offering up animals to atone. Israel was constantly bringing their animal sacrifices to the priests to make atonement on their behalf. It was ingrained in them. It was a regular practice. Think about the trails of blood, the rivers of blood that probably flowed out of that tabernacle in the temple. And so that might be one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of direct, overt examples of payment for sin because the sacrificial system was on the forefront. However, the principle of redemption does exist in the Old Testament. It very much exists. Exodus 13, verses 11 through 16, God instructs that the firstborn males of the flock were a redemption for God's deliverance of Israel. When he brought them up out of Egypt, he said, you will dedicate the firstborn males of the flock to me because of what I have done. I will redeem. Exodus 18, verses 15 to 17, the firstborn of men and unclean animals required redemption. Exodus 21, verse 28. This is an example, I believe, where if a man's bull gored 
another man, and this gentleman dies as a result, redemption is required. A price had to be paid for that life that was lost, even if accidental. If the owner of the animal had no prior knowledge of the animal's behavior and it was unfortunate and accidental, there was a price. The bull died and a redemption was needed for that man's life. So we have examples of redemption taking place among God's people in the Old Testament. But there are a couple of passages that do specifically reveal redemption directly for sin. Let's go to those. Psalm 130. There are a couple of passages in the Old Testament that do specifically deal with redemption for sin. Uh, Psalm 130. Verses 7 and 8. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Loving kindness, otherwise known as Michael has shared with us, covenant loyalty. There is a messianic redemption for sin here in Psalm 130 for those who will turn. Turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verses 19 to 20. 59, 19 to 20. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So we see that God will send his Redeemer to those who are turning from their transgressions or sin. And how about the example that we have in Ruth? It wasn't an exact, direct example of redemption for sin. But what a beautiful, beautiful motif Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, appears as Christ. What a beautiful motif that would foreshadow what Jesus would come and do for us to redeem us. Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi. Boaz married Ruth and gave her a son and took the shame that would have otherwise been upon her and gave her a future and a legacy and and a lineage. And for Naomi, he bought the land back that her family had owned. He redeemed the land for Naomi and her reputation and he redeemed Ruth. And he becomes this beautiful, perfect picture of Christ Jesus redeeming us back. For God, paying the penalty for our sin. And so we have a bunch of New Testament references that we won't go through all of these regarding redemption. 1 Peter 2 1. Peter warns that false teachers will deny Jesus redeemed us with his blood. Peter gives a warning. He says, There are going to be false teachers who come among you, and what they're going to teach is that Jesus didn't actually redeem you with his blood. Revelation 5.9 says that elders sang, Worthy is Jesus who purchased from every nation for God with his blood. 
The elders are singing, praise Jesus. He's the one who's worthy of opening the seals in the book because he has redeemed people from all the nations for God and he's done it with his blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 6, 19 and 20. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. God sent his son to redeem us and we receive adoption as sons and daughters. And then lastly, 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. We were not redeemed with perishable riches like silver and gold, but rather the blood of the Lamb. We weren't redeemed with money and commodities and riches and material things. We were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Peter says. Now, the fourth role that Jesus operated in, hanging on that cross, Jesus became a reconciliation for sinners. So he's become our substitute, our propitiation, redeemer, and he has become a reconciliation for sinners. Reconciliation simply means a change of relationship from hostility to harmony or peace between parties. Got a couple of parties? They're in hostility towards each other? Reconciliation means that harmony and peace have been brought and restored to these two parties. I think one of the probably most common contemporary examples that we get of uh, the idea of reconciliation, unfortunately, is in divorce filings. What do we always hear when we hear about a divorce filing being made to the court system? That the two parties have what? Irreconcilable differences. Whatever it is that's going on between them, they cannot seem to come back together in harmony. They are in hostility towards each other, And for whatever reason, harmony is no longer possible in their eyes. Think about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Irreconcilable differences, it says. And the present she left in the bed. If you guys know what that was. Romans 5, 9-11. Turn there with me if you would. Romans 5, 9-11. Romans 5, 9 to 11. Paul writes, Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were, what? Reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we... Also, exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have, what? Received the reconciliation. Jesus' death reconciles us with God. His death didn't just turn God's wrath from us. His death changed our relationship with God. We were an enemy of God, and now we have peace with God. It wasn't that he just propitiated and turned God's wrath. He also turned us from being an enemy to being in harmony and at peace with God. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Paul first says that God has been in the business of reconciling people. And Paul says of himself and his missionary friends, God reconciled us. He reconciled us when he didn't have to, but in his goodness he did so for me and my fellow missionary workers. And then Paul goes on to say that God gave to him and his ministry partners a ministry of reconciliation. Not that Paul and his friends could take credit for the reconciliation of other people and believers. It's still the work of God. But God is using Paul and his missionary friends and partners in the ministry of reconciliation. He's using them to share the gospel and to tell people about this great news. We have also been given the ministry of reconciliation to share the greatness of salvation in Christ Jesus with those who don't know him personally. Think about that. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation just like Paul and his fellow missionaries. And then in verse 20, Paul says this. In verse 20 he says, Be reconciled. To his audience. He uses the passive voice there, meaning allow yourselves to be reconciled by God through Jesus. This isn't something you can manufacture for yourself. You can't create reconciliation between you, God. He's saying be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit and allow yourselves to be reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through you so that you might move from a position of hostility with God to harmony with God and reconciled. Christ's death and resurrection changes our relationship with God from hostility to harmony. Now, second half of our time this morning, not chronologically, but content-wise, salvation is God's finished work in us. Salvation is God's finished work in us. And we might categorize this as Three stages or tenses. Three stages or tenses. The first one, I told you when we opened up that we're going to come back to these these principles. The first is going to be our justification. Meaning, we have been saved. Our justification means we have been saved. Justification is simply the act of showing something to be right or reasonable. To justify is a legal term Declaring one's right standing or position. And what's beautiful about justification by God is that it occurs the moment we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
The moment we accept Him, that free gift, repent and turn from our wicked ways, understand our sinful nature, He says, you're justified. You're in right standing with me. I'm legally declaring you in right standing with me right now. It is instantaneous. And so there we say, we have been saved. That moment that we confess Jesus, we have been saved. Justification is a sovereign act of God. And he declares that you and I are legally righteous and free from the penalty of sin. We'll come back to that in a minute. Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 13-15. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, the reason I bring that up is I believe that's just a great illustration that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae where he's saying, you know that debt that you had? That got nailed to the cross. In other words, God has become the ultimate accountant. You know what I mean when I say accountant? Jackie? We want this balance to match up with this balance. You take something from this column and your accountant wants this column to match up. Move it from here, it's got to go over there. Move it from here, it's got to go back to there. Right? God didn't just magically, supernaturally make our sin go away. No, he transferred that. It didn't just disappear. God took our sin debt and put it on Jesus' balance sheet. It didn't just go away, it still exists. He nailed it to the cross. It's now on Jesus' ledger. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we shared this earlier. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's that balance sheet. And so justification frees us from the penalty of sin. In a moment's notice, when we are saved and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, justification frees us from the penalty that we are rightfully due for our sin. The second stage or tense that we might look at is our sanctification. In other words, we are being saved. We are being saved. Now, sanctification means to be set apart for holiness and to be free from sin or pure. You would probably remember this from our study of homardiology. And sanctification represents both our position in Christ and both a process. We have positional sanctification, which is eternal. It's a done deal. We are as holy as we can ever be positionally in Christ Jesus. And yet, there is a progressive sanctification. You all know that, positionally speaking, you're completely holy. You can't get any holier than you are in God's eyes. But practically speaking, when you wake up in the morning and live out your life, you're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. When I step up to the golf tee... Every single hole. I step up there, put my ball in the ground on the tee. I am hitting the perfect shot until I swing. That shot is so far down the middle of the fairway. It is perfect. But in reality and in practice, once I hit, yeah. So we have position and progressive. Sanctification is a process in which the Holy Spirit 
works within our minds and our wills, freeing us from the power of sin that lingers in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes that we are being transformed moment by moment. Romans 6, 11 to 18. Romans 6, 11 to 18. You have been freed from the power of sin. Paul says it doesn't have to control you anymore. You've been freed of that. And so sanctification, unlike justification, is a lifelong process. And here's the kicker. Sorry to disappoint you this morning. Sanctification is a lifelong process that won't be completed on this side of heaven. Hopefully you're not all depressed and leave here, but it just won't get completed on the side of heaven. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. John wrote that to his audience. We are being changed by moment, by moment, by moment. And we know we're being changed into something, but we don't know what that is yet. We will not experience that on the side Sanctification is the process of us exercising our faith in Jesus and depending on the Holy Spirit to produce a Christ-like character within our lives. Many of us know that apart from the Holy Spirit or our obedience to the Holy Spirit, we're not very Christ-like, are we? Romans 8, 12-15, Paul writes, Living according to the Spirit means that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And as sons of God, we are to be led by the Spirit of God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So in other words, sanctification frees us from the power of sin. Justification freed us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification frees us from the power of sin. You have the power today to resist and not give in as though sin is some foregone conclusion in your life. Live and walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling on your life. And so our third tense or stage is our glorification. And we would say that we will be saved. Our glorification might be described as we will be saved. Glorification just simply means the ultimate perfection of believers. And boy, are many of us in this room looking forward to that. You kids don't know exactly what this is going to be like, but you'll get there in life. Where you will just be so excited and you will long for that new body that we will receive. And the aches and the pains and temptations of sin will be completely gone. It is the final and completed work of the Holy Spirit in us in which he frees us from the presence and effects of sin by resurrecting us to be with God forever. The Holy Spirit is going to free us from the presence and effects of sin when we are glorified. Romans 8.30 And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he did what? These he also glorified. Philippians 3, 20-21. Philippians 3, 20-21. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the extension of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Wow! That is going to be amazing. That is going to be a beautiful reality for us. And like justification, glorification is an instantaneous thing. It's instantaneous and everlasting. When we were justified, it happened in a moment's notice. Sanctification is a process. And glorification will happen in an instant when we stand there before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we'll come back to that First John passage. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. And then John says this. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Wow. Isn't that a great truth? We will see Jesus as he is because we will be like him. He will transform us and give us our new bodies. And so glorification frees us from the presence of sin and perfects us in reproducing Christ's physical and spiritual likeness. Glorification frees us from the presence of sin and perfects us in reproducing Christ's physical and spiritual likeness. Now the last thing that we'll cover here this morning as we close is simply our guarantee of salvation. I would love to spend so much time on this, but we just don't have the time this morning. But our salvation is guaranteed. If you suspect, if there's any ounce in your heart that there might be some way, shape, or form in which you could somehow become disqualified for salvation, let me tell you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will not let that happen. You will hear in the church, not Renew Bible Church, but in the church corporate. Many who believe, and they will use the term, that salvation can be lost. And I hate that term. I hate the idea of lost salvation. If anything, I would choose to refer to it as salvation that is forfeited, which I don't believe. But if anything, let's just say, can you forfeit your salvation? Lost means that you're out of control, that it's taken from you or something like that. Is there anything you can do to even forfeit your salvation? No. Because there was nothing that you and I did to earn it in the first place. So if we didn't even earn it, then what can we possibly do to forfeit it and lose it? Now let me share this. God has said from Romans 8.30, we covered that a minute or two ago, that everyone he predestined, he called. And everyone that he called, he justified. And everyone they justified, he is ultimately going to glorify. Now, if somehow we could forfeit our salvation, then this would not be true, That what God says. God says all. Right? All means all. It would only be true of some if forfeiture was a possibility. God has said, I got you. If I called you, if I justified you, I'm going to glorify you. Jude 24 to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Is God capable of that or not? Is God the Father able to keep you blameless and to keep you from stumbling? Yes. Yes, he is. 
Jesus said, nobody can snatch the sheep out of my father's hand. He's got us. Now, the son, son's got our back too. John 6, 38 to 40. John 6, 38 to 40. Jesus said this, Boy, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Twice he references, I will be raising up those whom the Father has entrusted to me. I will not lose them. I have not lost any. And I will raise them up in the last day. We will be raised up because that is what Jesus has promised to do for us. 1 John 2.1 1 John 2.1 My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But, but you're human. If anybody does sin... Guess what? We have an advocate with the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I would hope that you don't sin, John writes. But I also know we're human, and we are living out a process of sanctification. And that process of sanctification includes the mistakes and the sin that we still hold on to. Who will rescue this body of sin, O wretched man that I am? We are still wrestling with sin during this process of sanctification right now. And so John says, even if you do sin, it's not okay, but we have an advocate with the Father. That advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, the Holy Spirit keeps us too. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now, Michael taught that baptizo there, when it's used in its original context, is a full immersion. I mean, just completely being immersed in the body of Christ. You have been completely included in the body of Christ, and it is the Holy Spirit's work who is doing that. So how do we become detached from the body? How do we become dismembered? How do we be, get extracted out of the body? We can't. If it was the Holy Spirit's ministry to include us and baptize us into one body, then it's sealed. We can't be removed from that body. Ephesians 4.30, our last passage. Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has sealed us until when? The day of redemption. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit has sealed you until the next time you sin, and then you're out of luck. It says that the Holy Spirit has sealed each and every one of us who have trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior until the day of redemption, until we see Him face to face. Not until the next time we stumble. So that's why it's important for us to celebrate this guarantee of salvation that we have awaiting for us. That we have been justified. That we are being sanctified. And that we will be glorified. Because that is what God has promised for us. And it is nothing that we have done 
of our own volition. It is nothing that we have done for ourselves. It is 100% the work of the Lord. And Almighty God, who made provision, who established a plan, and had a course of correction already in place, he wasn't reactive. He wasn't stumped by Adam and Eve. Oh, shoot, look at what I have to do now. I need to come up with a solution. No. God is awesome. And the finished work of the Christ of the cross, Jesus was our substitution, our redemption, our propitiation. He was our reconciler. And he has made our relationship with the creator of the universe right again 